I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. Today's episode is about business value mapping. And it started uh, out as a potential discussion of Ray Wang's Who Wants to Rule the World book about this topic. But because of the expertise we had on the, on the call, we got really deep into what is business value mapping, how it works, why it works, when it doesn't work, what it takes to make it succeed. Um, so, you know, if you've read that book, I think you'll get a lot of extra depth out of this. If you haven't read it at all, it might be a good primer on why you want to learn more about business value mapping and uh, how to apply it within your own organization. This is part one. We're actually having a whole other session about operations value mapping uh, and talking that through in the next session. So stay tuned for that. We're about at the right time to talk about business value mapping. And I would love it if somebody could take the lead and explain what it's supposed to be. And, and the rationale, because this is this is where I, I want to ask questions and rely on your expertise. So can somebody lay it out? It's basically a process of assigning value to business strategies and even um, how organizations all the way down to a business unit level can benefit from technology in terms of revenue generation or value creation, capture, optimization, or delivery. It's very similar to what I did with TVM. And the only, I think the only difference is that in a TVM paradigm, you really look at the technology from the upper level of how does it benefit the organization overall and how many touch points can you make with the same technology to drive value improvement or continuous improvement from a single type of technology, right? Like in digital, it's 13 different categories of technology. Well, I could look at AR and say, how many different touch points from the top floor to the shop floor can I impact the business and drive value? And again, there's four pillars in value. It comes from the outside and the biggest picture down to like macro to micro, in terms of approach. So you look at things like Pestil analytics, you look at internal analytics as well, but you also start to look at the um, technology from the perspective of, is it capturing new value? In other words, new value being data as a service could be a new value that technology is enabling and somewhat driving, but the idea is that you're able to create a product from it. Business value mapping is a little bit less concise, in my view, um, all due respect to Ray or to Gartner or whoever, but the business value mapping, okay, so it's a former employer and I can smack them, but irrespective <laughs> of that, I can, um, I look at it from the point of view of if you're only looking at a business process that's short running, as opposed to a long running process that involves multiple units, you're not creating value in a way that you could truly optimize it. Like if you think about data as a service, it goes across multiple units in, a, in an organization. So that's kind of the difference between the two. It's a way for the business, it, it's a way for the business to understand the value of technology in business value mapping. Um, but not at such a granular level. I would liken it more to a very well-qualified and adept enterprise architect explaining to the business how it can drive value or generate revenue or cost savings or anything like that. Is, is part of the goal to look at it as a multiple, like all the touch points that you have in, in, in building like what your end product is? is like, yes. I mean, is, there, the, is some of this a systems, a systems view, you know, basically yeah. a business systems view? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a business systems view with a, an accent, a you on value. Like it's about driving value and create, create value is one thing. Capture value is a different thing, right? You can capture value from legacy systems because you're 
recuperating sunk cost on an ROI argument, but you're also generating the notion that you now can capture value from data that exists, from a process that exists, from a system that exists. Does that make sense to you? It it, it does. I guess I don't, I mean, businesses aren't already doing that. No. <laughs> I guess that's, that's where I'd scratch my head. I'm like, they're 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 so siloed and compartmentalized that they they don't even something that's shipping a product through all these different stages doesn't doesn't connect the dots internally. Not I, always. I, I, First of all, I guess you, we don't you have we silos. don't. Have, yeah. Yeah. Well, who knows? Who knows? Who knows the business value of the email system? <laughs> oh. Uh. That's a good question. Well, you can actually measure it, right, Tyler? Mm-hmm. You absolutely can. But nobody outside, nobody actually stops and thinks about that at the time or whether improving the email system or a collaboration system or anything else is going to make that much of a difference. Um, did any of you guys read Isaac's piece on um, um, what's missing from DevOps? It was on LinkedIn. If you did, one of the things that he talks about in his little five-minute uh, segment as well is he puts things in in silos, right? Like uh, PMO is a silo, uh, KM is a silo, and I I have a very different point of view. To me, and this goes to business value mapping as well. Knowledge is a corporate resource, period. And if you don't leverage that resource in any way, form, or shape that's possible, including with email, and measure the value of it, you're not going to get the benefit that you expect. Your ROI will be less impactful, and you will not be moving towards creating insight, right? Email is a really good example because the knowledge that's captured in email, if it's not um, carried through other systems, loses any impact it really has because it's just become a historical reference to a conversation or insight being generated or an idea or whatever. If you were actually to use NLP and mine email, you'd have an amazing set of data from which to then populate a data lake or some other format that becomes the knowledge resource for the corporation. So I look at, you know, his segment and I say, well, the thread that goes between the PMO or the, the other siloed systems that he was referring to is knowledge. It's a thing. It's And the system of knowledge management is designed to drive that kind of insight. And that is what is used for business value mapping, to create insight and capture value. One of the things that, that keeps coming up, though, is, you know, as we think about you know, the new uh, uh, kind of midst COVID, I guess I won't say post COVID, but midst COVID uh, kind of rationale for collaboration is we, we seem to be missing that curator, right? That, uh, right? that lives in the museum and decides what stays in the basement and what comes up on the the, the shop floor, right? You know, and, uh, you know, and so I feel like there's a, there's a new, position out there that's required in order to determine what knowledge really has value right and where where would it where would it rest where it creates the most value for us right where could we position that knowledge is it something that stays in the basement and under lock and key or is it something like in in our emails which is kind of the the analogy there right you know and then once we break the the kind of the, the mythology of privacy in emails, right? And we tell people, yeah, we're going to go mine your emails. Uh, you know, all the corporate emails are going to be data mined now. Uh, and we're going to be stripping out all the knowledge and sharing it appropriately uh, so that we build monetization off of that, you know, shared knowledge that you guys created, right, in your emails. Uh, but you, 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 will you get that same kind of continued sharing, going forward once people know that you're mining the, the emails. So I think it opens an interesting, you know, role for that curation, right? Is where, how do you do that? Well, you know, if, if you think back 20 years or more, 
the role of corporate compliance used to be records management and document management. And it's a similar type of thing that you're referring to. Who is filtering all of this? You can have the best NLP natural language processor or put rules around it, go and do that mining and then have someone in either regulatory or compliance or doc management or digital rights management go and act as that moderator curator. Um, there used to be a time when librarians worked in corporations just as much as they worked in public libraries. And that's what their job was to go through all of the curated documents, even in hard copy, and pull out what was really significant and what could be used versus what ended up in the basement as just an archive. You know, no, your eyes only type stuff. And I think more and more that AI becomes part of either CRM or email or collaboration software, it is going to take on that role. And then a human, either an ethicist or legal representative or a compliance officer is going to have to do that. That might be part of the CISO role or department that is controlled by a CISO. It's a very valid point. Um, I look at it from the digital digital transformation or industry four perspective and say, um, if it's anything longer than a minute or just you know binary data that that somebody is using to make a decision, but other than that, not, then let's separate wheat from chafe, right? If it's if it has to have a long duration, put it in the basement. We'll come back to it for predictive analytics or historical reference. But unless it's real time now and no decision is being made on it, out the window. Yeah, with the, the with the proliferation of the amount of information that we see, that curation function is essential. Uh, of course, the 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 obvious next question is, well, how do you how do you deal with bias in the curation of data? And uh, I recently read a Neil Stevenson book. I don't know if you guys know his his work, um, but uh, it's called uh, The Fall. But basically, in this future world, they had AI bots that would curate social media feeds and news feeds and individuals based on their own political and cultural and et cetera preferences would would subscribe to different AI bots that would present them their own uh, customized view of reality for lack of a better better term. Um, but uh, it, 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 it really does beg the question though, right? You know, so who, who programs the curation, right? And, and what is the, the purpose behind that? There's, there's a blurring between bias and let's just call it a, you know, an objective. I mean, the problem here, I mean, let's go back to email. Uh, we were just talking about, you know, using the content in emails and the analysis of the communication to extract knowledge, you know, curate it, compile it, so forth. But there are, there are domains of use, and therefore, I've always come to the conclusion that a single business value or a business value map has really almost got to be domain specific. And let me use email as a as an example. You just talked about knowledge and a knowledge base, and but in point of fact, probably one of the biggest untapped values of email is understanding what asset the business has in its staff and in its personnel. By the analysis of email, I know who's most recent, who's most current on a particular topic, who's been involved with something. I have a, potentially, I have a map of and, a, and an inventory of the asset base probably one of the most important asset bases of a, of a corporation, and that mm -hmm. is its employees. 
Now, talk about the value of email in that situation. If I have a much better handle on who's expert, who is long-term expert, who is near-term, you know, most recent uh, in terms of the their exposure to or dealing with a problem, that is a, an enormous has enormous value to a different to different kinds of businesses and to different roles within the organization. So the notion of a business value map that's kind of the one all singing, all dancing um, kind of index doesn't make sense to me. And in point of fact, I think it actually has to be by domain. It has to be design, domain-based design of the of the asset has to be factored in or has to be a driving force in business value. I well, guys, I, yeah, I, I completely I, agree I with you, Rich. To a, another <laughs> drop that and leave. I love I'm it. I'm gonna drop that one in there. Do <laughs> with it, guys, because I have an advisory meeting that I advisory board meeting that I, oh, I can't miss. No worries. I, I did that this I, I did that a few months ago, if you remember. Same thing. <laughs> And Tyler, I've never forgiven you for it. <laughs> so we'll never forgive you. Is that it? I, I know. I, I'll. I'll. Take, always. We're always. We're going to be talking. Talking about you while you're gone. I'll be. I'll be. I'll be bearing this one. This scar for life. Thanks. <laughs> we'll just Talk pass the baton to Rocky. It just. It, you know, I'm just promoting now. So. <laughs> okay. Take care. See you, See you Rich. So. Um, so um it almost sounds like it's 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 like what is your frame of reference for how you do the mapping or the the measurements uh what i think what uh rich was talking about is is basically a technology based frame of reference i'm looking at it from the perspective of the email system right that you know okay what is the business value of the email and I, I keep when I, in these discussions, I always go back to Goldratt's the goal and the theory of constraints and think of that their perspective is the perspective of the business, which the 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 critical metrics and the theory of constraints is dollars of profit. Right. And everything flows back from that. So ha so. Um, you're able to quantify this new tooling machine on the shop floor by the effect that it has on throughput and throughput impacts costs because you have economies of scales and it impacts revenue because you have quantity based on throughput, right? So what does that mean in the context of digital transformation for us? Uh, you know, I read, uh, you know, um, Infonomics. Um, right. Doug's book. book. Yeah. And, and had some discussions with him about that. And he he tried to quantify the, the value of information so that you could go as far as putting it on your balance sheet, quantify it as like a financial asset. Right. Um, but it, it seems like that never really took off. Well, there's a constraint that you may not be aware of, which is um, the financial community, the bean counters, have yet to recognize uh, data as anything more than an intangible asset. And until there's a financial come, you know, come to the meeting of the minds kind of thing where they decide to carve this in stone that data is actually not an intangible asset, but a tangible one, then I think you're going to see a lot of mm, sort of mishmash of how things are quantified. But if I address your particular case in point for a moment on the production floor, I think that's one of the most tangible examples. If you look at digital transformation in industry four, 
Industry four basically is optimizing time to decision as well as as a factor in time to value. That means the faster you make a decision, the more valuable it is. That translates to churn on the production floor. So I can give you the best example, client example. No names mentioned, but so we did this with a client where we actually, because they were buying into this time is money kind of thing, um, notion. And we showed them how to optimize certain pieces of equipment on the shop floor and the IT systems that controlled them, like the MES, CERP, and PLM system. And we showed them that by making the insight available, the decisions were made faster. And at the end of one full cycle, they actually could have done an a completely separate second production run over that time based on the amount of time it took to make decisions. And this is things like engineering change orders and countless back and forth with customers and and internal folk. This is uh, NPI processes that you're trying to go to the zero point, right? Time to value immediately taking a very sharp curve up. Um, on NPI and reducing the amount of time and cost for new product introduction as close to zero as possible. So by optimizing something on the shop floor, whether it's a piece of equipment, a sensor, a system of record, or uh, a system which gathers information and works either with robotics, cobotics, or human being, even including that interface, the HMI, you can save a lot of time make decisions faster, and that time savings then quantifies not only time to decision, but reduces time to value. And the goal in manufacturing for time to value is always the less is the less is the best, right? The faster you can deliver value of any sort, customer, employee, trading partner, ecosystem, you're, you're making money because it all translates into... Excuse me, what's that? Okay. Either cost of goods being reduced, profitability, any any of the financial metrics that you want on ROI. So that's where the two come together. But from the financial reporting perspective, that data has no value. It's intangible. And the only difference that I would make to Rich's point because it, it sort of rounds this argument out. You can't do business value mapping or technology value mapping by domain only for one reason. That domain is the entire organization. Otherwise, you don't get the long running processes that go through very large organizations. You can't break them by domain. Yeah, you, I, I agree with you. Uh, that's. You're, Email touches everything, right? There's too many right. touch points. There's too many interdependencies to be able to look at it from a uh, from a single reference point of reference. Right. But you're and, and but you're also most, talking about. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Um, uh, most intranets also have a knowledge component to them, and those knowledge bases are that reference point that Rich was referring to of uh, latest expert up on top of or whatever, whatever. You're not going to find that stuff in Slack. You, you're not going to find it necessarily in HR systems either. But in knowledge, if it's built into the intranet, you will be able to query it and find who's got the latest and greatest know-how on something, who's been in the game for you know 20 plus years and understands it even more intuitively than just the learning side. There's another component, though, to what you were talking about, because, I mean, to me, the goal makes a lot of sense. But one of the, the, my big takeaways from the goal and any of these, these DevOps processes is that we're very good at optimizing within our silo. And every silo has a tendency to, to, to have a desire to be 100, as close to 100% efficient as they can be. Right. That's one of those big things with the goal was like, they're like, we're running. This is our most expensive machine. So we run it 100%. They're like, but it wreaks havoc on everything else because of that. Um, and, and I can totally see where one, one part of the business saying, you know, yeah, we, we're not going to have a, this extra, any extra delivery people, right? 
because we don't want to hire, we don't want delivery people sitting around on their butt and, and the, you know, the business coming back and saying, you know what, we need to have fair capacity here to handle the overflow, even though it means that we're going to have excess in some cases. But that's different to me than what we're talking about with, with understanding, you know, who has, who's, who the experts are in your, in your organization, or maybe it's not, maybe it's realizing well, actually, dependency. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, I look at, okay, so my perspective may be different because I worked for massive corporations all of my career. Mm. They operate differently than perhaps a large organization in one location, right? You can have 10,000 people in one factory in the U.S. You may have 10,000 people around the world in another enterprise in another country just because of supply chain issues or whatever else. The, the idea that you won't hire delivery people is tap that person to figure out how to get an AVR on the shop floor, you know, a little robot that's picking up pallets and moving them from point A to point B. That's real time today, right? Um, that's not futuristic. Their view of how the shop floor would be laid out would be incredibly valuable to how you hire delivery people or which logistics provider you choose because it's inherently the same skill set. And so that's where things come together on the domain side. And from an enterprise architecture point of view or even a systems design point of view, originally, the value of SaaS providers, and, and I'm not dropping names to drop names, but Salesforce, for example, because of it being cloud native and created that marketplace with all the little pieces that would fit together, that is the reason that they came down that road. I mean, I know Bruce Richardson reasonably well. We, we go back a long way. The thinking is that all of these interdependent and interconnected parts should be mapped in a holistic way to drive the most amount of A, internal rate of return, ROI as B and C value, because you can translate that value into a financial metric on uh, customer sat, on brand value, on any of the things that are truly being measured on assets or income statements. So where do we think that I mean, that's that's a heavy lift, right? Looking yeah. at, at it from the system level. And I keep thinking that, you know, so I've I've bounced around in my career from Hewlett Packard, big company to smaller company now, now a startup. And the question is, what what is the capability maturity required for business value mapping to even be useful because at a low capability, nobody's going to believe the answers that you provide anyway. And there's there has to be this culture around the the valuing of it. You know, you we go back to the manufacturing analog, you know, 50, 75 years ago, um Nobody was thinking about Six Sigma, for example, or TQM or any of these other methodologies. But culturally, over time, manufacturing evolved culturally to be able to value these things. And I think that we're kind of on the same journey with 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 digital. Um, but it's not clear to me in my head, you know, what where do you apply this and to what degree do you apply it based on the capability maturity of the uh, really the culture and the leadership of the organization? Honestly, I can tell you that it I've, I've applied my version, which is TVM, um, which is very similar in the smallest startups to the largest of large enterprise. And it applies only because it draws from macroeconomics, microeconomics, the business process side, and the system side. And that sounds like a huge amount, um, especially when you want to globalize it. But I look at it this way. If you can draw a business value map in a startup to go where are the, which are the feature-rich parts of the product, let's say if you're a tech company, you can then translate that to 
make a better alignment and market fit from your value proposition of feature and function to the problems needing to be solved by your you know which of the whichever persona of customer you want to use you can also apply it in industry to lead and that value that that way of looking at value says you can use it in sales in marketing in customer delivery in engineering and and uh, itm any of that it does work and what it highlights to you is where your process efficiencies come into play and where they're lacking, but also how to tie things together to make a nice sort of neat little package when you do your GTM. In well, development, I, don't, I don't think it's a question of whether it works. I think all of us agree that it works. Um, it's it's and and I, I to your point, maybe it's not it's not company size or vertical. Um, but there's no question in my mind there that there are certain organizations I've been associated with in the past that if we came in and tried to do business value mapping or, or TVM, um, that would be wasted effort uh, because yeah. of the culture and the leadership. Uh, so, you know, so what what are the hallmarks of that type of culture early? So maybe it's a the psycho organizational psychographics for lack of a better term that that would would make it useful and and there's an incrementalist approach here as well where mm -hmm. you know it's a continuum right um so that's what i'm trying to get my head around uh, is so what contextually what level of business value mapping do i apply in a given situation I think I would decompose the big term business value mapping into smaller chunks. For example, run pest analytics against what, what it is that you're focused on in a particular moment in time or process or objective. And pest analytics basically gives you that high level. And once you have the um, assertions or assumptions or even hypotheses that you want to go forward with, then you bring it down one level. And you keep doing that. It's very much like enterprise architecture used to be, not mm -hmm. TOGAF necessarily, but definitely enterprise architecture. And that's when you start to see the value of the points being connected um, because it can be people, places, things at an IoT level or a systems level, it could be data flow from one machine to another machine, right? And how data works around that whole thing. Um, it, it really, I'm not trying to be obtuse here, Tyler. I'm trying to give you various starting points because really what you're asking me is where do you start and what do you start with? Well, well, yeah, that's that's true. Uh, I I was thinking that I, I'm not trying to give you a, a a hard time. I'm just no, no, I know as, asking <laughs> uh, probing questions because I, I appreciate your perspective. Uh, I think about how uh, so 22 years ago I was at Hewlett Packard. I was a chipset architect on the Superdome Unix server platform, and I was able to automate the testing. Uh, so that the 75 design verification engineers writing tests all day, we could take their tests and run them automated in the lab when we got the prototypes. And the way I was trying to sell it was if we could do this, we could reduce our time to market by six months. Mm -hmm. And that's an absolute true statement. But what actually happened was they just exponentially increased the amount of testing that they ran and didn't reduce time to market at all. And the mm -hmm. reason why was because of the individual metrics of the different managers at different levels in the organization and what they cared about in terms of optimization, kind of going back to what Rich was talking about in the silos. Right. So, so I could Devin's have taken paradox. a a $6 billion product line and, re, and improved the release schedule by six months every 
two and a half years, mm-hmm. which would have been a multi-billion dollar business impact. Yeah. But I was selling it at the wrong level of the organization. Nobody cares at that level of the organization. So what I found was to be successful was I had to come up with a WIFM for each department, each group that aligned with the system level benefits. Right. But I had to do I had to do the the value mapping myself. So I knew what the greater good was. But that's how that's how I was able to get things moving. And I've got tons of other stories like that, like at Rackspace, and I'm sure you do as well. But that's kind of my perspective on where do you start? You start by figuring out what's the end game. Like the goal is is revenue and profits, mm-hmm. and work your and way back into the work your way backwards to the whiffums of each of the stakeholders in every part of the organization. And um, yeah. that's, by the way, much easier to do in a small in a startup than it is in a large corporation. Um, I don't disagree. My little trick was making my whiffums not only appeal to broader numbers of people, but kind of, and and maybe this is a, she can do it thing that I can't do it thing. Um, because being in the minority in a management level, I could sort of convince if I got one VP or better to buy in, I could then tell them what the extra what's in it for me would be if they would bring their cohorts along. Like you go talk to so-and-so before I go talk to so-and-so and you'll represent this as you'll get extra value. He'll get extra value. And then when I come sell it to him, you're both going to buy in. And, yeah. and that's how I mm-hmm. built the masses into things like e-commerce or, or B2B for very large corporations. And mm-hmm. I completely agree with you. It is a backwards facing thing, but if you start with the past or the pastille, at the beginning, at least you can look at things like, you know, from our perspective, we do it for a lot of, you know, small vendors and stuff where we paint the picture of their competitive landscape in a way that's economically and value driven metrics, not just KPIs of money, because it, it's the guy who you don't see coming who ultimately bites you in the derriere. I have a question for you because yeah. what you're describing to me sounds a bit like CICD processes or what we're starting to do with infrastructure pipeline processes, where instead yeah. of trying to say, hey, the, the goal, you know, the goal is end-to-end automation, but what we what we can get a benefit from is if two adjacent groups are collaborating, and if you've improved the efficiency of just that one handoff, you now have a, a mini flow or a mini stream. And then right. that is, is much easier to expand because then they can say, yes, if you improve the feed and, and, and I improve the output between those two, then everything, you know, then that sort of streamlines it. So do you, do you see that as a business? That to me is very technical thinking, but. Yeah, no, I, I do see that. What I would say though, is it's not an extension of the one. It's an aggregate of the individuals. Right. Yeah, because you have long running processes and you have short running processes. Mm-hmm. In addition and, to that, the example that you used, Rob, about improving the collaboration between two groups, yeah. uh, it, it that only matters if that has an impact on the output. So right. if you improve it, so so that's the, the, like right. the aggregation of the individuals, you, you have to target your process improvements through automation and other methods such that they have a discernible impact on the output because that's what drives the whole cultural um, uh, process. I, it's it's funny because I've been the last like the last three days we've this this topic has come up a lot in the the value is not automation. Automation can make an individual group faster. It might not. It actually might make them harder to integrate with, or harder to collaborate with, because their their automation is now fixed. Is now fixed the way they do things, and they don't 
it makes it harder for them to take changed input upstream. It takes makes it harder for them to change their output downstream. Um, and it sounds almost like the business process is the same thing. So, like, because part of what we what we put in the original outline was di di digital transformation. So there's an underlying element of improving these processes, right? I'm, that's always I'm assuming that's the assumption of of it. You know, we're, we're transforming, improving these processes. But if you just well, take you, one group and and transform one group, you might have actually made it harder for that group to interact with other groups. That. And, yeah, and when I mean, you say improve, improve is hard because uh, I think Joanne was saying <laughs> different people have different measuring sticks, right? Some of them are looking at volume, others are looking at, at, at quantity. Yeah, or, or personnel efficiency or waste. Um, well, waste is actually a really good one. But before I say that, the, the overarching premise here is that value, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. And until you can pinpoint what what on switches to turn in terms of the value oh. and and translate those as well into a financial metric, and you have to do both, you really do have to do both. Um, it tends to be overriding. And part of the reason that I ascribe to industry four methodologies and design tenants, the principles that and and there are four of them but nine to 11 architectural premises for systems development is because i've now in the past five years applied it to almost every industry regardless of of what they are and seen that it works so it gets over some of this is it a single process or a single improvement that you then extend versus multiple versus multiple <clears throat> individualized processes or long running processes that then you expound to be the sum of all of the parts and and get the overall benefit that way but the two things to bear in mind is what are you optimizing is it time to value as an overall, or is it time to decision, time to data delivery, time to in, you know input? How do you make those flows work? And that's the trickiest part. Maximizing shareholder wealth. Sorry. Pardon? <laughs> maximizing yeah, shareholder, shareholder wealth. Wealth. I mean that's, um, that's corporate. Yeah. The, uh, I'm the, more of the maximize investor wealth. Investor well, wealth. I mean, who hasn't who hasn't worked with or worked work in an organization where, you know, everyone's running their own political agenda, right? I mean, I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, this, I mean, we're sort of talking about this in kind of an idealized fashion. And I trust me, I, I, I love the, I, I love the idea that that you know, people do, people are doing the right things, you know, to maximize investor value or to max or to maximize, you know, the 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 output of the organization the reality of it is very different i mean is i mean every i mean i'm i deal with large corporations day in and day out in fact i was just on a rather uncomfortable phone call this morning where you know essentially two executives are are running their own political agenda um you know at the you know to the you know to the absolute detriment of the organization overall um how do we solve that? I mean, I mean, I, I mean, I mean, and I'm, I'm, and, and I'm not sure we can. Um, so the question is, is how do we work in that environment? There, well, the way, the way I, the way I look at it, Dan, it, Don, sorry, uh, is understanding the political landscape and providing value specifically to the, the, the folks that wield the most influence and, building alliances with those people because I've benefited them and then leveraging that to win over the skeptics as it were, and then getting an opportunity to go and help those folks. So the trick is that, you know, back to the theory of constraints is figuring out how to provide business value through your understanding of how all the inter 
dependencies work in a way that's tangible for the power brokers to to drive those benefits uh, while understanding that you've got to avoid the situation Rob pointed out where if I create an optimization here, it doesn't benefit anyone. So that's why you've got to do the value mapping so you can understand that you can deliver the value that you're trying to 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 use for political benefit. But you you also need KPIs. This is this is something I was like because I'm I'm thinking about this and even connecting two groups together in a pipeline doesn't matter if the thing that they're optimizing doesn't isn't something the other groups mat, uh, talk about and it doesn't matter if. Um, if you've if you've you know if if you're you're doing something that you're optimizing that actually doesn't improve what the end goal is. So so I do see if you're you're gonna start of any of these processes without understanding what you know the executives in the company are going to be excited to see you improve as an output. And if you if you don't have that measurement and you haven't talked through that process, then basically everybody's targeting their own optimizations. They're not they're not doing the work to improve that that those critical KPIs. Yeah, you're well, so right. That's that's what I did wrong at HP back in the day was I I did not get the conversations going where the different leadership really appreciated or had the metrics for improving time to market. And if they had, then they would have valued um uh, the the, uh, the approach that uh, test automation provided. Tyler, were you customer facing? At that time, I was not. That's done. One of the keys is if you if the two executives is a little with their own agendas and fiefdoms um, are worrying. It has nothing to do with you. It's just they're having their own political battle about their next step forward or whatever. It's anybody who's customer, my rule of thumb is anybody who's customer facing will immediately buy in because what it translates to is your selling process will be expedited. Yeah. Your commission check will be in your in your pocket faster. Um, any of those, you know, with me's is is valuable to use. But overall, to to your point, Tyler, plant managers are now realizing that they were short-sighted. So are procurement people, not only because of supply chain disruption, but just generally speaking that, you know, it doesn't fit in my JIT or my whatever, and I can't use my Kanban for this. And yeah, you know, Six, Six Sigma was great. I call it digital lean, sometimes light. Um, having been through that whole rigmarole. But overall, people are now buying into the notion of value. And the KPIs, Rob, create, capture, optimize, deliver. If you can hit any one of those four pillars, you basically have hit every corporate objective from shareholder and investor value to uh, becoming a cooperator with your competitor to um, pushing challengers aside because it's all about time, accelerated economy, and the faster you can make those decisions, the faster things happen, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, we're all little hamsters on the big wheel, but it does help by, by using those four pillars. And the financial KPIs are fairly easy to translate, right? Capturing value. The cost of capturing value is NLP and email. There's a perfect example. What's it going to net you? Expertise for knowledge. Um, who may be imminently resigning? Um, does that violate your privacy? No, because if it's corporate email, it's a corporate asset. That's what any okay. HR will tell you. And you have no, uh, you should have no um, expectation of privacy in corporate email. So I that's that, where but I, I also think it's, use, it's useful. It's useful to explain the benefit of the tools to the people who are who where the emails being where, where you're reviewing. And, and most employees are going to understand the benefit of you know being like, yeah, if, if I'm providing a lot of value, I want to know. And if I'm yeah. not, um, right, you need to figure out why that person's, you know, not, you know, not included in things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That'd be interesting in a lot of cases. 
I think well, even, in, even, in, even in my 10 person company, it would, it would create, reveal some interesting, uh, interesting patterns. Well, you, oh, speaking of startups, um, I have some news. We have just hired our first full time employee. Uh, he starts on the 20th. So, uh, so we, we're, we're currently, uh, uh, profitable as soon as he starts we will not be but uh no, but it's a it's a big step it's a big roads. step for us congratulations that's very good i'm sorry i'm not familiar what's your startup doing uh so starting up uh data data fabric okay wow I hope you enjoyed this session as much as I did. I know I tend to get pulled into technical topics and it's really fascinating to listen to the business challenges that go along with this and then framing the technical challenges into business terms. And it's amazing how related they are. Uh, you know, a lot of technology problems come back to people and communication and not understanding your targets and objectives. And no surprise, business challenges are the same thing. So we stand to benefit a lot the more conversant we are in both of these ranges. And we are going to be talking about the uh, operational, the technical side, the operations value mapping here, and going back into some of those processes. So stay tuned for that episode. It's going to be a good one. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.